Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next guest is the co-founder and principal of Sterling Johnson Real Estate and SJA Property Management. He is a licensed attorney who specializes in real estate transactional law and has worked in the property management industry for over 15 years. Here to share with us his nuances of Washington real estate laws compared to other markets and their best practices to deal with it. Please welcome Devin Easterlin. All right. Today we've got Devin Easterlin with us. He is a principal at Sterling Johnson Real Estate and SJA Property Management. Devin, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you want to kind of just give us a little background on yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, sure. Thanks, AJ. So yeah, like you mentioned, I started with a co-founder, Sterling Johnson Real Estate and SJA Property Management about, I guess it's coming up on 13 years now. So we actively run those two business lines and we're also active investors in Washington state. So my partner, my business partner and I own some multifamily buildings, commercial building, things like that. Originally out of college, got into law, went to law school, was an attorney for a hot second there and then decided that's not what I wanted to do and sort of put that on the shelf and then started these companies and I've been doing that ever since and currently I'm the president of the property management that's awesome, Devin. Yeah. So one of the things that we're really interested in and kind of a new series that we want to go into are the differences between states in property management laws or even real estate investment laws or development laws. I know that there are just so many different nuances and the fact that you're a property management company owner and a real estate investor, just like us. I feel like there is a lot of knowledge to share. Obviously, we aren't attorneys or CPAs. And so therefore, anyone listening to this, please do not take this as legal or tax advice. So Devin, do you have any like big, I guess, like noticeable differences between state laws that Washington is known for? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's interesting for us. We can keep a handle on the state laws, right? The state laws, you know, once those are passed, they change a little bit slower than the city laws and things like that. And while they may be more tenant friendly than, say, Texas or some of those places that you see when you, you know, go to the conferences and you meet other property managers and they talk about what they're able to do in comparison to what we're able to do, we can still deal with it. I kind of think of it as, you know, really job security for a property manager to stay on top of those laws to make sure that our policies and procedures match up to them because they are changing and we have to change with them. Where it gets difficult from what I see, and I'm not an expert on Oregon laws, but I'm sure you might be finding this as well, it's when you go city to city. So now you're dealing with, right? You're dealing with different cities and their different variations and interpretations of laws. And so you're trying to adapt to that within your systems as a property manager, as an investor. And that gets really 
difficult to do. Probably the hardest city for us to deal with is Seattle. Seattle changes its laws quite frequently and they are very pro-tenant and they restrict a lot of the landlord's abilities and make it a little bit harder for them to own property in the city. So let's kind of dive into statewide laws because that is a little easier to understand and then we can kind of jump into the cities as well. What's interesting in Oregon is city-wise is like each city kind of has its own little rules. So you got to stay on top of those too. But statewide, you know, Oregon has rent control. We can only increase rent by 7% plus CPI. And it'll be interesting to see what CPI is in September when they update it for this year, or if they try and change the law prior to that, which I'm kind of expecting. Because right now we can roughly increase the rent around 10%, which I mean, is totally reasonable. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, are you thinking that they might repeal rent control or just change it to some degree? Go ahead, AJ. You know the answer to this. (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, so the way that it's been described is that you've kind of let the camel his nose underneath the tent, right? So with putting that rent control in place, they now have the ability to change the law is a lot easier than getting it in place. So, well, you know, it's stated like the camel's nose is under the tent. So that 7% plus CPI, well, they could say, oh, CPI raised up to 12%. Like it's not reasonable to raise rent 19%. Let's take that 7% down to five or three or two. And then when inflation kind of, you know, hedges back down in the next like three, four, five years, they'd be like, oh, well, we don't need to raise that initial interest rate from, you know, one or two back up to seven. So then it just becomes CPI. That's the fear that I think a lot of investors and landlords have is that like once the law's in place, it's easier to ratchet it down and change it. Whereas like getting the law in place needed a vote or, you know, the ability Mm -hmm. to get it in place. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. And you know, I mean, the fact is, is inflation is high and everyone's going to feel the pain of that. It shouldn't be on the brunt of landlords to really take that on their back and be right. the brunt of it. Yeah. So right now in Washington state, rent control is illegal. However, it is something that gets floated in the legislation every now and again as something that they want to challenge and change. What they really do, what I've seen over the past, you know, five, eight years or so is death by a thousand cuts. So they just put in a lot of regulations and timelines as a way to control how much you can raise rent. So there's various provisions on how early you need to give tenants notice before we can change the rent. So in, say for example, in the city of Seattle, I think it's 180 days now that you're giving them notice of a rental increase, right? And then if you're doing a rental increase, above 10%, there's additional rules that go with that. So everybody's doing it at 9.9 or something like that, right? With their rental increases. So we see a lot of different things. There's a lot of variations of that theme where they make it harder to either remove a tenant, meaning that you need to have a just cause to remove them. And they outline exactly what that is. These are the various reasons that you can end a tenancy or they make it very hard to raise rents by pushing back 
the notice provisions and what you have to do. Now we have to serve these notices that used to be, you know, we could just agree on something between the tenant. Now we've got to serve these notices of exactly how much it is. And they provide a lot of forms that we fill out and things like that in order to do that. So right now, while it is illegal under the Washington State Constitution, they are making it so it's almost in actuality a form of rent control. That's interesting. Yeah, that 180 days notice is a lot more than ours. I believe ours is nine plus mailing, so it ends up being like 94, 95. Right. It makes it difficult. Both as what's really happening is interesting now that we've had this for a few months and we're dealing with it, is the tenants are going, well, what are you doing? I don't know if I'm going to renew my lease, you know, six months from now or even farther if we have to start the process as a property management company, you know, getting those notices out and sending, hey, do you want to renew? So a couple things. One, they're not sure if they want to renew and we're having to go off today's prices for rent. We don't know if rent could go down or up or whatever it might be. And then our owners are forced to make this decision a lot sooner than they normally would be. So it really shifts the burden, I think, primarily on tenants to say, okay, you're going to be, are you going to be locked in when life circumstances can change, you know, over seven months, right? Well, and like there's probably some adverse effects that happen to the tenants too, because looking that far out, you're like, well, I might as well raise the rent, you know, the max amount before, rather than going through all this extra work. And right. so everything just gets raised up quicker and quicker and quicker. And then it promotes them to move, which then costs them more money. So yeah. it's kind of a tough situation, the longer out it goes. I mean, like realistically, like how long does someone need to move? I mean, 180 days seems like a long time, but I get the idea where, you know, if you're a landlord that's been lackluster and raising rents and all of a sudden you want to raise the rent a ton in one year, like, mm-hmm. I think that that's what this law is really kind of like counteracting against. But the byproduct is it's just created a bunch more work for the good landlords, which kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, what we're seeing, and there's been, we've put together some studies on this and some numbers to back it up, is the harder you make it to be a landlord or a housing provider in the city or the surrounding areas, the fewer people want to do it. And so whenever these housing providers, you know, it gets really difficult or they're exposed to a lot of risk, meaning if somebody starts to default, it's very hard to get that person out and for them to able to get that little mini business which is their rental back on track now they're carrying more risks it's there's more administration or even just the burden of the administration trying to stay up with it well then they sell those properties and what we're finding is those properties are not being purchased by investors so that housing supply that much needed housing supply which is you know the three bedroom two bath homes not the multifamily units, you know, there's supply with that, but those places for families are coming off of the market and they're not being, they're not being bought by investors that are going to turn them into rentals. They're being bought by people that are going to own them. And we just lose that housing supply, you know? So it's the thought, you know, I understand the intentions behind it, but what happens in actuality is we're, we're removing a lot of this housing supply away from the market that's freeing up prices because there's more demand than we can meet. So, you know, just kind of another, you know, question back on to like for property management, like, you know, you've gone to conferences and talked with a bunch of other property managers from all over the nation and that sort of stuff. Like what makes property management unique in Washington state or like, what are some of the other like identifying things that Washington state has done that may not be 
you know, applicable in Texas. And I, I appreciate the one about, you know, the 180 day notice, like that seems very different, but like, what are some of the other like top tier kind of like things that maybe are different than other states? Yeah, I think one that comes to mind is the ease of removing non-performing tenants in other states. It's a much faster process and it's almost, you know, it doesn't involve weeks and weeks and weeks like it does in Seattle and the surrounding areas. So if there is a non-performing, they can get those tenants out quickly, which reduces the landlord's risk. So that's a big one I see. Another one that we see is the amount of services that you can provide tenants and then charge for. So in Washington, say we'll just take Seattle, for example, there's a limit to how much you can charge a tenant to move in and things like that. Well, if you're providing services, additional services, like so many property management companies do in other states, and then they charge for those, that wouldn't be allowed in Seattle. They'll, they'll, they cap the amount of move-in charges that a tenant can be charged. Let's see, other things that I see, there are some ongoing services that are not allowed in Washington that other companies provide, such as eviction protection. So some companies will provide eviction protection services to landlords which says if there is an eviction, we're going to step in and act to remove the tenant on your behalf and you won't have to pay extra. And so they'll charge their owners for that additional protection. And in Washington state, that's not allowed. You're not allowed to pay charge extra for a service like that. And there's a lot of things that are like that, that I see from other property management companies where they're trying to maximize the amount of revenue they get per account by adding value and then charging in Washington, that's much more restricted. So we see that there are ways to increase revenue by adding additional services like most companies do are a little bit more. We have less options. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. That's interesting. So now not only talking about like regulations with regards to tenants, you're talking about regulations with regards to like clients or owners. I know that California has a lot more regulations that like service companies like property management companies can charge owners. I want to say, luckily, I don't know that Oregon really has anything like that yet. So that's kind of a big plus. Yeah, that's an area that is a little less restricted for us. But on the tenant side, you mentioned how you're capped at charging move-in costs. We are capped at zero when it comes to move-in costs. Or I think there's a list of five fees that we can charge in Oregon to tenants. So, yeah. yeah. And we're not capped throughout the entire state. Seattle has a cap on that. Washington, it doesn't have necessarily caps on the rest of the city. Some cities do, but most of them do not. So Seattle does for sure. And they outline a couple things that you can do, you know, like a non-refundable cleaning fee, just like Oregon does, but just a couple things that you can charge. One other thing that I think is unique about Washington is in the contract law, So in most states, you can amend your contract or update your contract, your property management contract with your client 
with certain notice, right? Right. And then in Washington, you can't. You have to get a signed addendum. So you have to have them sign. So say you have a new law and your procedure changes in your property management company. And now you need to do something different. Or you are trying to update your liability protection because of new, some new risks in the market. Anything like that, you couldn't just provide notice of the change to the property management agreement. You need to get that signed by the actual client. And that, what about updating your rental agreement with like month-to-month tenants? Does that have to be signed too? Or are you allowed to update your rules? And Yeah, that needs to be signed as well. So yeah, so anything, and they're pretty strict on that. And I think where that's mainly driven from is the Department of Licensing. They're the ones that are super strict on that. So you're saying that if you have like, you inherit, you buy this property and there's a lease from 25 years ago that like in order to update that lease, you essentially have to evict the tenant or get them to sign something? Well, yes. So if it was a term (laughs) lease in the middle of the term, right, they would have to agree to the change. Sure. Right. Right. In a month to month, you could give them notice that says, hey, this change is happening. Okay sign this or you have to move out right so it gets a little bit more complicated in in washington terms and especially in seattle on month-to-month agreements then you're going to be falling into just cause then you need to have one of the various reasons that they outline as a reason to end the tenancy a couple of reasons would be you're going to move back into the property or you are going to sell the property those are viable reasons and just cause as to why you'd have to end that tenancy so, so is it rental increases kind of a contract? I mean, does that mean that you have to get the tenant to sign rental increases in order to increase the rent? Because that's a change to the contract. Well, if it's a month to month agreement, no, you, as long as you gave them notice that were served with the increase, it wouldn't have to be changed. Correct. Yeah. As long as you followed the rules, kept it under the cap, and they had notice, which now needs to be served, then they wouldn't have to sign it. And what about billing back utilities? Let's say that you've got some tenants who you're currently paying water, sewer, and garbage for. Right. So you're currently paying water, sewer, and garbage for, then you're going to now start to charge for water, sewer, and garbage. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. So shifting the responsibility on a month-to-month tenancy. Yeah, month-to-month. You know, I'm not 100%. We don't do months to months here. Out of our 700 tenants, we have maybe a few because we try to stay out of that because it does fall into just cause and it makes it very difficult for our owners to have flexibility. So that was one I would want to check with an attorney that deals with that to see, okay, because that isn't necessarily rent, my questions would be, is this now going to be considered rent or is this going to be considered a new charge? How is that going to be classified? And then just make sure that you're you know, following the rules exactly. Yeah. So like when we acquire a new apartment complex or, you know, like a new property, we're in generally inheriting really old leases and, you know, really low rents. And so one of the first strategies that we use to increase the value of the property is to implement rubs. Right. And you're saying that you're not a hundred percent on kind of where that falls rent or associated yeah. costs or so, um, yeah. so Chris, I do the same thing. So when we buy a property, that's what we do as well, but we're always signing new month to month agreements. 
So whenever we do it, we say, okay, this is what the rent's going to be. And this is whether you're doing a flat rate or proration, depending on the amount of uh, people in the unit, you know, however you set up your rubs, I've always had them sign it. Yeah, I think that's the nuance difference between Washington and Oregon. And at least in our state, we're able to just provide them notice, such as like a rent increase, whereas like it sounds like you guys have to sign new contracts. Yeah, kind of like that definitely sounds like a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge, you know, and then it also puts them in the position of are they going to sign this or do they have to move out or something like that? So, you know, I think as an investor, it makes sense if you do inherit a property with existing tenants to understand your your risk of vacancy and to not come in guns blazing with huge rent increases or expensive rubs program. You know, we try to do it gradually over time to get to market over time to give those tenants some time to figure out if you know, with the improvements that we're making to the building, if it makes sense for them to stay or not. I have seen just because of the climate around in Washington, that landlords that have done that sort of with the scorched earth approach, they buy a building and then they try to, you know, immediately come in and move everybody up to market rents or something like that. That's been problematic and they've been in the news for stuff like that. So I think it's just a poor approach just in general, right? A more nuanced approach that tries to work with the tenants seems to be better for everybody in the long term. So when you're acquiring a new property or maybe a client's buying a new property, you'll take all of those leases that are all old and month to month and you'll rewrite them with your new lease terms and maybe small rent increases or small changes and essentially say, sign this or leave? Right. So what we typically do, if they are on month-to-month agreements, we will go through over time and get everybody up to our contracts. And that's not only just because there might be a potential rent increase, which, you know, like you mentioned, Chris, with an old building or with a mom-and-pop landlord or something like that, oftentimes the rents are really low. and They're not even close to market because they just didn't want to deal with it. But it's our leases are much more protective to the landlord as well. So they have a lot of provisions in there about liability, what's allowed, what's not allowed. You know, smoking would be an example or other things, like things that are you want to fall back on. I would say it really puts our owners in a much better position if they're on our leases because there's a lot, they're just more detailed. They go over a lot more than the leases that we normally will see that are just very basic and don't cover a lot. Because when it comes down to it, when you're dealing with a tenant in a landlord-tenant situation or a dispute, it's really nice to be able to go back to the four corners of the document and say, hey, in your lease right here, it says that hey, you, this thing is prohibited and it can't be allowed. And then we can always fall back on that. That helps us with fair housing as well. So then we're saying, hey, we're treating everybody the same. We're all on these leases. We're enforcing them the same across the board. So nobody's getting the appearance of preferential treatment. I think is really important too. Yeah. And then from a property owner standpoint, right? Or property management owner standpoint, it's hard if you're dealing with all kinds of different leases that are have different terms in there to be systematic in how you do your procedures, right? But if you know, okay, you know, the vast majority of our tenants are on the SGA standard lease, then we know kind of how to operate that in a more efficient manner. So that comes into it as well. But essentially like let's say you've got a 30 unit apartment complex they're all on month-to-month leases on day one are you guys letting the tenants know hey we're going to be updating the lease like here's a draft of it and 
you know, you've got X amount of time to sign it. Otherwise, you're going to have to move out. Is that? I would say every situation is different. So you've got to understand the situation before you do something like that. And we, as a property management company, only do small multifamily. So we're not coming into 30 units. You know, we're doing like a fourplex, 12plex, and we'll typically batch it. So we'll start the process of getting people on the various leases. And oftentimes with our leases, there's benefits as well. Like they don't have to write checks anymore. They get, you know, their own unique portal where they can pay the rent through there, or there's tenant insurance they can take advantage of. They can submit maintenance requests online. There's some things that they might not be getting with the current landlord that now we can provide them. I think that's really important when you're dealing with tenants where you're inheriting them is you don't want to come in as the person that's making changes that are not in their benefit. You want to say, hey, we're coming in. We're going to bring this property up if there's deferred maintenance or anything like that. We're going to make it nicer. We're also going to make your experience better. Because some of the time they'll say, well, yeah, no one ever repairs things on a timely basis. I don't know who to call in the middle of the night, things like that. Well, we're providing them with all of that. So I think looking at it from a customer service standpoint is really important as well. Now they can call in the middle of the night and there's going to be someone that's going to answer. They can do things online that they couldn't do before. You know, we'll take over the water building for them so they don't have to wait for it in the mail. They can just pay it directly with their rent as well. So coming in as much of a win-win as you can, that's just a better approach. I like that. Yeah. Can we ask if there's sort of like what's unique to Washington in like real estate purchasing or the transaction of real estate? Is there anything? I know that you guys have transfer tax that can, yeah, excise you know, tax. can, can get a little expensive. The excise tax. You know, and I don't do a lot of out of state investing. So what I think is normal might may not be. <laughs> you know, I think the biggest thing that I run across and just dealing with other investors throughout the country is what we're willing to pay for things in comparison to what they're willing to pay. Right. So, you know, our cash on cash returns that we're looking at here, you know, a good deal is 5%, right. Where in other places they're looking at 15% or, you know, their cap rates that they're looking at, and I understand that's just, it just tells you what an investor is willing to pay in a given area, but we're seeing cap rates extremely low in Seattle and the secondary markets in comparison to some other. Devin, a quick question. Like, I guess, I mean, I know what Chris and I's answer is, but why do you think that like that cash on cash and like those numbers are so low in your state in comparative to others and like why people are still willing to buy onto a deal that has those type of numbers. Right. Yeah. I think the answer is kind of maybe multi-pronged. First, you got to, I think we have to understand what game are they playing, those investors. So everybody's playing a different game. And so some might be like, Hey, I'm parking money for a while and I'm okay with, I don't need the cash flow. I'm not using the cash flow to go buy a second investment. I feel as though this area is a strong area in terms of appreciation, right? So I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of my cash return to get into an area that I feel has strong infrastructure, strong job growth and that type of thing. And, you know, I think we're trained as real estate investors, when you start to get into it more, to not think about appreciation so much and think of that as more of the, you know, the frosting on the cake rather than the cake itself and saying, does the investment stand alone on its own without appreciation? 
I think that's a much more conservative way to do it. And probably a smarter approach for most people, especially if they're trying to build a portfolio. They need that to cash flow. They need to be able to, you know, have some sort of exit strategy so they can burn out of it, take their money back and that type of thing. But the investors that are willing to invest in these low cap areas in the threes, you know, the low floors, I think they're thinking of it as I'm doing this because I feel like there's strong growth over the lifetime that I own this property and want to see a lot of appreciation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think appreciation is like the number one answer, right? And with lower cap rates, when you know Chris and I are able to add value or increase the NOI, that actually multiplies the amount of money that we're able to make as well. So like with a lower cap rate, a smaller increase in rent is going to be a higher value towards on the back end. Whereas yeah. like if it's a six or a seven cap and we increase the NOI, you know, five, 10%, like if we don't increase the value of the property that much. So there is some incentive. And I mean, like you said, it's just a different game. The numbers work differently in each of the markets. And, you know, I think that that's where it's really important to understand who's operating the investment, like having that experience and knowing what's going on in the area is super important. Chris, what's your answer on why people buy in our area as opposed to, you know, going some other place where the cash on cash is much higher? Well, I mean, honestly, I think it all just comes down to like sales comparisons. So, you know, everyone says that it, you know, hey, we're looking at multifamily apartments on an income approach. But really, you know, you get a lot of people talking about how much was it per door, per unit, per bedroom. And that's all sales comp approach. And, you know, you talk about class A, class B, class C. So they're really wondering, all right, if it's a class C apartment with really low rents, that's going to sell at X per door based on these sales comps. And, you know, they're going to pro forma out all of the rents so that, you know, when you go to sale, we're only really looking at what the market rent would be for this. But if you brought that class C up to a class B, then, you know, now you get into a different bucket of sales comparison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, like that is kind of how I underwrite our deals as well is what are things selling for right now versus trying to come up with a specific cap rate. Yep, the NOI matters a lot. And you want to know how much NOI you can get for a certain like type of building. But really, I think that it depends more on sales comparison. And so that's why some people pay more in Seattle or LA or San Francisco than, you know, in Cleveland. It's just people are willing to pay more. Let's jump back into property management laws. What are relocation costs and I guess rental increase caps like in Seattle? Yeah, let's see. So in terms of they just passed one this last year that had to do with if you increase the rental amount above, I believe, don't quote me, but it's about 10%, I'm pretty sure, then you have, you can be subject to paying relocation costs. And I think those relocation costs are pretty stiff. stiff. That's new for us. We've never dealt with it. Just a quick question. Are they fixed or are they multiplier of like rent or security? I think they're a multiplier of rent. Yeah. Multiplier. What's kind of interesting, I'm waiting for Portland to change is they've set fixed amounts. And as time goes on and inflation happens, those fixed amounts are going to become less important 
right? Like in right. five years is the, you know, $2,000 relocation cost going to be, it's not as much value. So I'm kind of curious, but that's, you know, the, and the state law did a multiplier. I think the multipliers are more kind of like timeless is I guess kind of. Right. Yeah, I know. Cause that obviously goes up when rents are more expensive. That typically means that everything else is more expensive as well. So yeah, that's one. And that's, I think I alluded to this earlier. That's why people are setting their increases just below that threshold. Yeah. Right. So that they don't have to fall into that. And like I said, and you know, all of our units, we haven't had to deal with it yet through that, but yeah, it's definitely out there. And, you know, it serves the purpose of keeping rent increases somewhat manageable for tenants. So if it's a number like 10%, that's a pretty big number. I think we can all agree that a 10% increase in one year is a pretty big increase. I haven't seen that be a huge, you know, deterrent to landlords right now wanting to keep their properties because they could only do that. We're not seeing sometimes when you buy a building, that might be a little bit different and the rents might be very low, but in our portfolio, you know, even in a good market like now, we're seeing between maybe, oh, five to 10 on the high end in terms of if the market has just really exploded in a given area, how much rental increases we'll go after and negotiate or and talk about with the landlord. Very rarely would it be over that anyway. Interesting. So in Seattle, is there a rent increase cap or is that just kind of tied to the relocation costs? I believe it's tied. I'd have to check, you know, like I, there are so many regulations and they're changing so often that we just put in policies in place that make sure we're in compliance. And while I have, you know, a lot of green in that, we still have attorneys on call to help us with this and to keep up with things that so we just go to these landlord attorneys. That's what they do every day. I don't believe and we'll have to check, I can get you the answer that there is a cap. I believe there is just a lot of hoops you need to jump through if you were to go higher than 10%. Nice. Have you guys gone higher than 10%? Well, I'm sure we have in the past, you know, across yeah. the whole portfolio. But not but with all the extra since, hoops. Yeah, not where we've had to. So we've never, again, this is new to Washington. You guys are more a little more used to it, but we've never had to pay relocation costs or anything yeah. like that. Re- relocation costs have been around for us for like four or five yeah. years. So I remember you told me that a couple of years ago and I was just, my mind was blown and I should have known it was coming to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> said it, yeah. I, Which, I couldn't even I mean, believe like, In all like, honesty, it might be headed like nationally too. Wow. I mean, like it's, I think in Oregon, it was ruled that it's not a form of rent control either, mm-hmm. which is kind of yeah. crazy. Interesting um, case. Yeah. So one, we actually one, talked with the Supreme Court judge who was part of the, I guess, judges that made the ruling. He was on the dissenting side, but okay. got overruled by all of the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. I think when you're investing in from state to state and trying to get the nuances of the laws, especially in states like Oregon and Washington and California, where things are changing so quickly and you might think you have it down, it's really important to either you know partner with a property management company that can help you through that or join an organization that helps landlords. So we have RHA, which is a great organization in Washington, and they have forums and you know you can have you can do chat with an attorney if you have questions and they have all the forms that they're keeping up to date because just as a landlord that's trying to do it on their own, it's almost a full you know part-time job just to keep up with making sure they're in compliance. 
right? And you have other things to do. So it's that would be my advice because these things are changing so they're so fluid. And what's required of a landlord is the repercussions if you do it incorrectly can really impact your bottom line of that investment. So just educating yourself and joining one of those organizations or partnering up really helps. Yeah, that's great advice. Oregon has the Rental Housing Alliance too that's comprised of landlords. But I mean, even as property management companies, like we belong to NARPM, National Association of Residential Property Managers. And then also here in Oregon is like multifamily Northwest. And then you've got like IRAM out there. Like there's resources if you're a professional company or if you're a landlord and, you know, seeking those out to understand and at least know what it is that they offer. We're definitely big subscribers of being a part of something larger that is really in some aspects like lobbying at the legislator for us too. So that's pretty cool. They're also keeping those forms up to date. I think as an investor that's doing it on their own, which you definitely can, if you want to take that control and really lean in, using a place rather than just getting forms off the internet or something like that that aren't updated regularly, using a place where their attorneys are constantly going over the forms and changing those, is just going to put you in a much better position. I think that's great. Great, so, great advice. Yeah, the forms are huge. So... There is this kind of trend of it's more difficult to, or essentially for tenants, like if they move into a place, it kind of becomes a home for them. Like it gets really, really difficult to, you know, take the property back, even if you want to move into it from a landlord's perspective. What do you think that this trend is like, how do you think that that is affecting, I guess, the tenant's mindset. And like, I know that it, it's very different in Texas than it would be in Washington or Oregon. Like, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, to me, it seems like an interesting trend. And like, I guess having the ability where the tenant has a little more control to stay in it somewhere longer seems like it's more valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that trend. I think the legislature you know, the legislatures and the city council and the people looking to advocate for tenants are trying to add stability. They want to add stability. There's this narrative that if you lose stability, it adds to homelessness, which is a big problem in Seattle specifically. So they try to make it so that by these programs, I think are their hearts are in the right place. It's just the repercussions that they have that maybe haven't been thought through completely can actually end up making the problem worse, like we talked about with losing housing supply. I also think that one of the benefits of renting that a landlord gives up is the ability that the tenant can leave at the end of their lease. They're not locked in for a long period of time. If they're on a month to month, they can give notice whenever they'd like and they can leave. The landlord is taking on that risk, the risk of the vacancy, the risk that maybe they leave during a bad time of the year to re-rent. That's something that they should So I think the housing provider should, it should be a balance, right? I think that's a better situation than saying that one party has all of the power and has all of the freedom while the other party doesn't. And that's kind of where I see the pendulum swung a little bit, maybe too far in one direction where the balance of the People don't have equal say in the situation. When you see a landlord that's not able to remove a tenant that's non-paying or something like that, but then the tenant can leave whenever they like. That seems to be out of balance for me. And it makes it as an asset class, as an investment, when you're looking at all of the things that you could be investing in, 
whether that be a 401k or you know stocks, bonds outside of that. You choose to invest in your local community. You know, you invest in Main Street instead of Wall Street. And but yet, if you have to shoulder a lot of risk to do that, and that might be your only main investment, and you're planning on that for retirement, things like that. The more risky you make that, the less certain you make that, the fewer people are going to want to do it. You know, and I think we need more people investing in our local communities through providing housing rather than less. You know, I think that would help to have more houses out there available. And like we talked about, different types, you know, single family houses, townhomes, multifamily properties, just a lot of options for people would really help, you know, the affordability. Thanks, Evan. I completely agree with that. You know, the balance of power is sometimes as a landlord, I'm happy if a tenant has decided or relocated, I'm like, oh, their rents were really low. Now we can get it up to market rent. Like this is a great opportunity, even if it is like, during the dead months, like in November, December, or if they, even if they leave with no notice, like in the middle of the night, you know, sometimes that's a great situation. The one area where I really agree with you is the, I mean, rental assistance here in Oregon is just brutal. Like if a tenant has put an application in for say that they are seeking rental assistance, there is a, I want to say it's roughly a six month stay on an eviction. And there's something that's been created called the landlord guarantee program where they will cover three of those months if they don't qualify, but the landlord is just stuck. And like the timing of it is just unreal. And so we haven't been burnt by it yet, but it just, makes it really, really interesting. And the the past due balances that we have are like piling up. So the landlord is really bearing the brunt of that. And so I want to say at some point in the near future, probably in about six months, all of the COVID rules will kind of expire, but it'll be interesting to see what sticks around. And I want to say the landlord guarantee program is here to stay. So essentially, tenants in Oregon, even if they don't pay rent, they can stay at a place for a very, very long time without the fear of an eviction. Right. One thing that just came to mind, Seattle just just passed a law where you can't evict someone during the winter months, so you can't start the eviction during the winter months, which they've defined as, you know, a few months in the coldest time of Seattle to where you can't even start an eviction for a non-paying. So that's going to delay those timelines and the amount of debt that these tents, I think that's a point that isn't brought up a lot is the more you delay the normal eviction process, the more debt the tenant acquires. And so they get to a point where they have such a huge amount of debt that they need to pay back that they can't pay it back even with a payment program, right? Because the balance of power had shifted before, you know, we've been doing this for over a decade, like I mentioned, and I can count on my fingers how many evictions we've done, right? All the way through eviction out of thousands of tenants. And that's because the balance of power was pretty even, right? We could negotiate things. If it had to come to the courts, we could use that. That was always something in our negotiating, one of the arrows in our quiver that we could use. 
But the vast majority, you know, 98%, we were able to settle or come up with a situation where the tenant moved out early or get the tenant on the payment program because there was that balance of power. When we lost that for COVID for those few years, we just had a few. It wasn't very many. We had a few that just weren't paying and weren't responding to any of our communications. And racking up, we had one that's $28,000 worth of debt for an owner where they had no ability. We had no ability to negotiate or help them through that situation. Where in a normal climate where there is a little bit, there are mechanisms to remove tenants, you might find it much easier to come up with solutions that work where the tenant isn't left with a huge debt at the end of the day. Where they can get out earlier, we can allow them to break their lease without repercussions in certain situations where it makes sense for the owner. It just allows for a lot more flexibility. And when you go one side or the other, I don't think it works as well. Interesting. All right, Devin, I think that we are on to the point where we're going to ask our final four questions. AJ, you want to kick us off? I am starting us off. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? All right, one piece of advice to my 25-year-old self. So probably from an investor standpoint, I would say start now. Start investing now. You know, find something small, get involved, you know, just get the ball rolling. I think that's something that I would say when I was 25, I started a little bit after that, but I would want to do it a little bit more. I would want to lean in a little bit more on that. Let's see. I would say, you know, from a business standpoint, just commit to an area of business and become an expert in it. Don't worry that it might not be your passion at this moment. You'll find things that you become, that, that really spark your interest as you become an expert in the business. So say for property management. You know, I never grew up thinking, man, I'm going to own a property management company one day. But I find things as I've become, you know, really involved in the industry and met peers and things that make it fun and interesting for me. So just really commit and become an expert as soon as I could. Nice. I think that is great advice, especially with the investing of like, just get the ball rolling, get started, figure it out. And like more will come later. Like you don't have to figure out how to own 10 properties. Right. Start, start with one. Don't make it too big, right? Just get going. Yeah. Okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Yeah, let's see. So I started a lot of businesses as a little kid. I think the main one that I was doing for a while is I was extracting quartz from rocks. So I would have this sort of sledgehammers and I would break these rocks up and you know, you get those white quartz out of there and they'd come in like cool shapes and sizes. And then I would set those up on a table and I would sell those to my neighbors, you know, for whatever amount of money. The problem is I lived on a really low traffic street. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Like the amount of effort that I put in breaking these rocks apart to get this, like, you know, that white quartz, which is almost valueless as a kid. I feel like this is like a Marie Kondo thing. Like, I mean, did breaking those rocks like bring you joy and happiness though a little bit? Well, I just thought, you know, you got all these crystals and they got all these, you know, we had one of them. Anyway, yeah, that was my first one. I've had a few since then. Awesome. That's very unique. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah, so definitely my informal training is my dad owned rental properties and I was the guy going out there and painting them and shampooing the carpets and all of that. So I kind of got an understanding of just the boots on the ground, how to manage property and own investment. 
my formal training definitely learned a lot in law school about understanding risk, I think is a big one, where to put attention to make sure that the company's safe and that our owners are safe. That was important to me. So I use those law skills quite often, even though I don't keep my license current at the moment. That's helped me in property management because it is so litigious. And we've been able to, you know, fingers crossed, navigate that pretty well over this past 13 years. Wow, cool. Okay, so what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Yeah, so you know, where you start, right? Oh my gosh, lots of them. But I think the biggest one was trying to do too much. So I think when you're starting out, and even now I suffer from this, there's always a lot of opportunities. There's always a lot of things that you can do. And the ability to focus and to just get good at one or two things and get really good at that and put all your attention towards that rather than dispersing your attention over multiple things, I have found is really powerful. So whenever I can do that and I can really just focus on one or two things and getting really good at that, that's helped a bunch. I completely agree with that. Focus is a, gosh, just, yeah, so many different opportunities out there. It's, <laughs> it's, yeah, so, it's so hard. So hard. They all seem good too. Yeah. Well, Devin, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Really thank you for coming on the show. If our audience wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would just depend. I'm always happy to talk about real estate investing and investing in the area just to chat. I don't represent investors, but my firm does. And we have some great agents that can help them through their journey and help them evaluate properties if that's what they want to do. But I'm always happy to have a conversation. If it's about property management type stuff, I would say definitely come to our website, which is just sjapm.com. And that has a lot of videos, a lot of frequently asked questions. All our rates are on there. So if they're interested in that type of thing, feel free. But again, they can email me and I'll always get back to them if they have any questions on just the market or my thoughts on things. My email is just devin, D-E-V-I-N at sjapm.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Really, really had fun chatting with you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks, Devin. Really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.